This is HiFam. I'm Avital. Today, I want to explore a concept that guides me in my day-to-day life and that I think is sorely missing from our cultural conversation. The concept I'm about to share is attributed to the Rambam, or Moses ben Nachman, commonly known as Nachmanides, who was a leading medieval Jewish scholar, Sephardic rabbi, philosopher, physician, Kabbalist, and biblical commentator. He died in the year 1270, but his ideas have shaped and formed Jewish philosophy and broader cultural thinking to this day. We live in a day and age where feelings reign supreme and where people are constantly encouraged to be in touch with their feelings and where we as parents are often very attuned to and sensitive to and concerned with our children's feelings. And we've discussed this on previous episodes. And I've outlined how I think in general and in many ways, this is a really good thing. I don't think suppressing feelings or ignoring feelings is a good idea. It always comes out in ever bigger and more dramatic and more detrimental ways when we suppress our feelings. But I also think there is such a thing as giving too much credence to feelings. And I think what's happening is that this is a case of the cart before the horse. We are misunderstanding what feelings actually result from and the correct order in which to view them. What we're doing today and what we're telling many kids to do today is to follow their heart, to follow their feelings. In other words, first ask yourself, how do I feel about something? And then decide whether or not to do it. If you don't feel like sharing, that's fine. If you don't feel like getting up on stage because you feel afraid, then don't do it. If you feel like this work is too hard and you feel tired, then you can't do the work. If you feel like someone's being unkind, then you should, you know, break ties with them or get offended because your feelings are your guidance system. If previous generations viewed feelings as insignificant, as something to brush under the rug, as something to just, you know, slap a smile on or have a stiff upper lip about, our generation has flipped that on its head. And not only are we not dismissing them, which I think is a good thing, but now we've gone so far in the other direction right? Kind of like that pendulum swing from one extreme to another, that now we are making them the most important thing. So I want to give a brief and really kind of shallow, quick, superficial outline of what feelings are, why we emote, right? Why we suddenly have a wave of sadness or happiness come over us and why I think we've actually flipped the whole system on its head. A simplified version of this would go something like this there would be some kind of real life event, right? Something would happen in the real world. Maybe we are taking a particular action, like I'm jumping out of an airplane or I'm getting up on stage or I want to buy those new shoes. And that is the trigger, you might call it. Not in the sense that it triggers us into flight, fight or freeze mode, but in the sense that that is the first domino in these processes. And so something happens, there's some kind of event and some kind of behavior, right? And then we have a thought about that. It's a split second, subconscious, uh, completely involuntary thought that we have. We make a judgment call. We make some kind of discernment in our brain. And basically what's happening is we're interpreting the situation, 
Like if I'm about to jump out of a plane, my thought is probably going to be my subconscious and conscious thought is probably going to be, I might die. This is scary, right? And as a result of the thoughts and interpretations of this, I will feel the embodied feelings, the emotions, and that's the expression of the feelings in my body of fear. Or if I'm about to buy a new pair of shoes, I might feel excited. Why? Because I looked at the shoes. That's the trigger, the behavior. I chose to purchase them. I'm holding them in my hand, right? And that triggers the thought within me, the split second discernment, judgment uh, within me. These are beautiful. These are going to be so comfy. I'm so excited about this. I Getting new shoes is a, is a good thing. And as I'm having those judgments in my brain as thoughts, they are then being interpreted and kind of acted out in my body as a feeling, as a sensation uh, that's being expressed throughout my body, right? Again, a really superficial idea, but just taking you through the steps that we go from behavior to thought to feeling. And the way that we know that it goes in this direction is because you could have a different thought about that particular behavior and that would result in a different feeling. For example, if I was buying a pair of shoes, but I felt that they were really too expensive, or I was worried that they wouldn't be comfortable, or I felt like I shouldn't be buying them, I felt guilty about it. If I then had those thoughts about the shoes, oh no, I'm not sure I like them, I'm not sure they'll be comfortable, I'm worried they're too expensive, that would result in a very different emotion in my body. I wouldn't be feeling anticipation and excitement and gratitude. I would be feeling anxiety and concern and irritation and and, and worried, right? So the behavior itself is kind of neutral in most cases. We could interpret it in many different ways. Here's another great example. It's raining outside, right? That's just the fact That's the action. That's the trigger, you might call it. And then we could have a variety of interpretations around that. If I'm a bride on my wedding day, I might think, oh no, this is going to ruin my day. This is terrible. And then I'll feel the feelings that are associated with that, feelings of dread and, and upset. But if I'm a farmer who's been praying for rain, I might think, oh wow, this is a blessing. I'm so grateful. And then I will feel the associated feelings of joy and gratitude. And that's why it's such a crucial and detrimental and damaging mistake to be guiding our children to follow their feelings. Because feelings actually are the end result of our thoughts. And our thoughts are the end result or are associated with our interpretations of, generally speaking, our behaviors or the reality, facts on the ground. And that is why it is so important for us to flip this on its head. And that is exactly what the Rambam did. He said, which in Hebrew translates roughly to the idea that it is after our actions that our heart will follow. Or in short, feelings follow actions and not the other way around. This concept suggests that our emotions are not fixed and that we can influence them by changing our behavior. Essentially, our actions can influence our feelings rather than the other way around. The concept of feelings follow action suggests that we can change how we feel by taking action. When we take particular actions, it actually creates a sense of momentum, which can change our emotional state in turn. And this concept is based on the idea that our emotions and behavior are interconnected and that we have some degree of control over how we feel. So in some ways, we actually can choose how to feel based on the choice 
to behave in a certain way and to think in a certain way. In today's world of follow your feelings, follow your heart, of whatever you feel is what should guide you, we are actually missing out on the key and the fundamental process that human behavior, growth, change, and I think just mental health and well-being relies upon. And that is that we actually have a large modicum of control over how we feel based on our interpretations and mindsets and our choices of how to behave and how to act. Maybe you've had that human experience that we all have had of feeling like you're in a funk, feeling kind of bluesy. And maybe you've decided to just lift yourself up and go out for a run or something like that. The truth is that when we choose to do something like exercise, we are taking an action often despite our feelings, that is going to lead to a change in our feelings. Because engaging in physical activity, such as running, yoga, or weightlifting, can release endorphins, which can help improve our mood and reduce stress. A similar thing is a gratitude practice. Often when we're feeling our most irritated or our most frustrated with how life is going, like life isn't fair, if we actually sit down and write down or verbally express what you're thankful for, it can help shift your focus to a positive aspect of your life and to the things that you have to be grateful for, which in turn leads to a calmer, happier, more grateful feeling inside. Have you had the experience of feeling very overwhelmed, like your to-do list is just too long and you don't know where to start or how to begin? When we take the action of setting small goals, achievable goals, and taking action towards them, it can provide a sense of accomplishment and improve motivation. So even though we felt demotivated and overwhelmed, just the fact that we took a small action towards our goals is going to help us feel that renewed sense of energy. Another example is when you're feeling lonely or isolated or down in the dumps. If you still lift yourself up and go to that party or meet up with a friend, often socializing, spending time with friends or with loved ones can boost your mood and provide a sense of connection. So it's exactly when we feel the most misunderstood or like no one cares about us or like we're unlikable, right? When we're unhappy with ourselves, Those are the times when we don't feel like reaching out to a friend for coffee or calling your sister or doing something that's going to lead to connection with other people. But the action of socializing often helps us to shift that mood and, you know, feel better. Another example is learning something new. Many times we feel like we lack confidence. Maybe you've been a little bit off your game at work, or you've been wanting to do something for a really long time, like write a book or start a podcast or learn to knit, whatever it is. And you don't do it because you feel a lack of self-confidence. That's the feeling, right? Like I'm not accomplished enough. I can't do things. I'm, you know, I'm out of the loop. But actually the act of learning something new, taking on a new hobby or learning a new skill can provide a sense of accomplishment and boost the very self-confidence that would have limited you from diving in to begin with. Another example is when we feel stressed and uh, triggered, right? When we're yelling, when we're angry, uh, when we are uh, constantly getting activated in a way that we're not proud of. It's a feeling of being out of control. It's a feeling of being 
angry, being rageful. And if we continue to simply act on that feeling, actually the anger and the rage can simply spiral. It can get us to places that we really don't want to be. But if we take the action of taking a break, of sitting down and listening to a mindfulness meditation, for example, switching on some music, even opening the window, the action itself, it changes our mood. Even the action of doing a headstand or a handstand or just lying upside down off the edge of the couch and allowing our blood flow to change in our body and our literal physical perspective of the room to change has the power to help reduce stress and improve our mood. And any meditation or any practice or mantra that helps us focus on the present moment helps shift us out of that feeling. So if we were just going to follow our feelings, what would happen is we would just let rip, we would behave badly, we would raise our voice, we would get aggressive. But if we take a different action, we have control over the end goal, which is to feel better, to feel calmer. Another really powerful example is one of the things that I notice a lot in today's uh, generation of young children is that there's a huge focus on ourself, right? On feeling good about ourself. It's kind of this, I guess, continuation of the self-esteem movement that we need to boost our children's self-esteem. They need to love themselves. I guess the self-love movement, you could call it as well. And I think there's a place for healthy narcissism. There's a place of for liking yourself and for being proud of who you are. Um, but there's also a place for humility, for being humble and for not centering yourself even in your own life. And the reason for that is because when people are um, single-mindedly obsessed with their own self, with their brand, with their image, with their happiness, it actually leads to degraded results in terms of their mental well-being. When people are focused entirely on themselves in a selfish way, in a narcissistic way, or even just in an outsized way, um, it actually does not lead to higher self-esteem or to higher self-confidence. And this is true um, for all of the things that we think would boost their confidence, like giving them trophies, giving them stickers, giving them praise, rewards, accolades, uh, celebration, um, even any, any kind of just, you know, remarking on how special they are. That's often thought of as something that's going to boost people's self-esteem, but it actually leads them to feel like this kind of inflated ego feeling where it's not really based on their actions. It's not really based on something that they've earned or achieved or accomplished or worked hard for, but rather kind of like blowing hot air in their face. But the opposite of this is when we encourage our children and when we ourselves focus on helping others, engaging in acts of kindness, such as volunteering or helping a friend, being hospitable, being thoughtful, reaching out to others, being a great listener, being involved in our local communities. All of these can actually help improve our own mood and provide a sense of purpose, which in turn actually leads to a higher self-confidence, to a higher self worth to a higher self-esteem, which was the initial goal of many of those practices to begin with, that goal is actually much better achieved by helping others and by decentering ourselves and thinking about what we can do in service of. Now, of course, we also need a healthy narcissism. We need to take care of ourselves. Uh, we need to love ourselves. But when that is the focus that we're teaching our children, love yourself, love yourself, love yourself, love yourself, we're actually setting them up for failure in that exact regard. They're actually much more likely to dislike themselves and to find themselves unbearable because they have not 
earned a sense of purpose and meaning through the actions that they take. When we teach them to be um, judging themselves just based on the fact that they were born, right? Just, oh, you're amazing and you should love yourself and you're special just because you're here. Um, We're not setting them up for a sense of creating meaning and purpose in their lives. And I'll say that, of course, every human being is worthy just because they were born worthy of respect, of, you know, their human rights, of unconditional love. All of that, you know, worthiness to me is an, is not a question, right? That's not something that is in question. But the idea of confidence or actually liking who you are, feeling good about who you are in the world, that is something you need to build. That is not something you're just simply endowed with by the fact that you were born. You need to improve your character. You need to build, uh, you know, positive habits, positive traits. You need to overcome your shadow downsides, right? Like when I gossip, I don't like myself and rightfully so. I think I have good judgment in that regard and that I don't find that to be an admirable quality. So if I'm gossiping or if I'm lying or if I'm being greedy or if I'm being unkind or if I'm being uh, rageful, those are not qualities that I personally admire. And therefore, when I display them, I don't admire myself. I am not proud of myself. I don't have high self-regard with, you know, with regards to that particular behavior pattern that I'm displaying. And when I'm engaging in behaviors that I do find to be generous or kind or self-regulated or, you know, uh, positive in all the different ways, then I actually have evidence and I have a real reason. And the process of going from behavior to thought to action is triggered in a positive way, right? I'm like, here, my behaviors and my thoughts lead directly to positive emotions, Another way that you can boost self-confidence is through creative expression, through engaging in creative activities, painting, writing, music. These can provide a sense of accomplishment as can any achievements or accomplishments, right? Working hard in math and mastering that next level, Uh, you know, learning to read, learning to ride a bike, learning to tie your shoelaces, Um, any kind of acts that help you to see yourself as a capable person, as someone who overcomes challenges and obstacles, as someone who keeps trying even when the going gets tough, as someone who is able to grow and learn. Those are the types of things that actually give children and ourselves, of course, a sense of accomplishment that leads to that improved sense of self and improved motivation. With that said, engaging in self-care activities like taking a bath, getting a massage, practicing yoga, these two are the types of actions that can shift us out of feeling, you know, impoverished, feeling sorry for ourselves. And as parents, we often feel like we're victims, right? We get stuck in victim mindset like, oh, I'm slaving away in the kitchen all day. I'm giving, giving, giving. I'm exhausted. I'm depleted. And yet we get stuck in those feelings and we feel those feelings and we allow those feelings to lead us, to lead us into a funk, to lead us into sadness, to lead us into the blues or resentment that builds towards our family. But it's taking action that shifts us away from those feelings. For example, if you are feeling resentful and overstretched and overwhelmed because you're up at night with your children, taking the action of teaching them to sleep through the night and setting clear boundaries and firm empathic limits around that is the action that is going to lead to you thinking and feeling better about that situation. If you feel like it's so unfair, I never get to take care of myself. I'm a mess. You know, I'm a hot mess. I've got Cheerios in my hair. I've got spit up down my front. I'm always in yoga pants. Taking the action of showing up, of putting yourself together, of having a shower, right? Of getting dressed in the morning. Just that action itself leads us to feel better about ourselves. 
And so it's not the opposite. Don't get it confused, right? Don't get this twisted. It's not when I feel motivated, when I feel good about myself, when I feel like I'm worthy, when I feel like I have confidence, when I feel like I have more energy, then I will show up and take care of myself. Then I'll brush my hair. Then I'll wash my face. Then I'll make my bed. No, it's when I make my bed and brush my hair and wash my face, then I will have motivation and mojo and energy. It's the action that leads to the feeling. And we can spend our entire lives waiting for the feeling and not experiencing it because we haven't taken the action. This is true in our relationships as well. When I feel in love with my husband, then I'll be loving towards him. Then I'll greet him warmly with a smile uh, when I see him. Then I'll touch him. Then I'll do, you know, acts of kindness or uh, arrange something fun for us together or just smile in his general direction. No, it's the actions that lead to the feelings. When you smile at someone, when you touch them, when you're warm towards them, when you're nurturing towards them, that's when you start to elicit those feelings within you of warmth towards them, right? When I feel motivated, I'll read to my children. No, when you read to your children, that will motivate you. Then you will feel accomplished and like you're doing the parenting thing and like here we are, we're actually reaching for our goals, Speaking of goals, I bet you have some big goals for your family. In fact, I bet you have some big dreams inside your heart for what family life could be like. You didn't start your family just to muddle through the days in a bundle of stress and overwhelm, frazzled and flailing, like so many of us feel when it comes to raising children. You started your family, which took you tremendous effort and energy, because you had a dream of what family life could be like, of the meaning of the togetherness, of the resilience, of the bonds, of the attachments, of the relationships that are there to last a lifetime. And if that's something that you feel like you want to take action on, if you feel like you need the accountability, the support, the community, the coaching and the guidance, the actual practical projects on how exactly to make your dream family life become a reality, then join me this April in the Dream Family Bootcamp. Just go to highfam.com slash bootcamp. That's highfam, H-I-F-A-M dot com slash bootcamp, B-O-O-T-C-A-M-P. I cannot wait to see you there. Now back to the show. You know, just recently, my daughter developed a pretty big fear of dogs. And it was strange because it wasn't based on any trauma. She didn't have any bad experiences with dogs, but just this gradual fear kind of festered in her thoughts and continued into a fear that was embodied, into a fear that actually made her, you know, hyperventilate and run away and get scared and scream when she saw a dog. And a great opportunity came along where our friend had a wonderful dog that needed to be babysat for a few days, dog sat. And I offered and I was very happy to bring this dog into our home for a few days because I know that through the embodied action of getting used to a dog, taking care of a dog, having a dog in your environment, through the behavior of being with a dog, she would reverse train her brain, right, to feel better around dogs. And that's exactly what happened. When you voluntarily take on fears or sad feelings through actions, you are able to rewire your brain to feel differently. 
Just as if you're in a funk and you're feeling bluesy, but then you decide to get up and put your gym shoes on and go out for a run, you are tripwiring that circuit and you are instead starting a new circuit of feeling good. You're triggering endorphins and releasing all of these great chemicals, uh, but also different thoughts about yourself. Oh, I'm someone who has energy. I'm someone who's going out running or I'm someone who can handle being around a dog. It's actually through the action that we overcome our fears and frustrations. An act of bravery, like taking action in the face of fear, like speaking up in a meeting or trying something new or crossing a bridge that you're afraid to cross, uh, these can improve self-confidence and provide a sense of accomplishment. If I had followed my child's heart and her feelings, I would say she's not ready to be around dogs. She doesn't feel like she likes dogs. She feels afraid. If we follow that fear, the end goal is that we avoid dogs. But if we do the opposite, if we actually confront dogs voluntarily, okay, didn't force her into this, but I said, come, let's be together. Let's stroke the dog. I'll hold her collar. We'll ask her to lie down, right? And you can come when you're ready. It took her a day or two to fully feel ready to, to, to hang out with the dog and to stroke her. But by the end of it, she was walking the dog on a leash. She was brushing the dog's hair. And she now tells me, I love dogs. I want a dog. That is the power of the action influencing the brain. In fact, there are studies, scientific studies that have explored the relationship between behavior and emotions. For example, a study that showed that people who smiled more, even if it was forced, reported feeling happier. Okay. And the important thing here is that it was even if they forced themselves to smile. And how did they force themselves to smile? They were given a pencil to hold between their teeth. Now, if you bite down on a pencil, you are forming the shape of a smile with similar muscles in your face. But there's nothing about that that's happy, right? You're just holding your teeth in that shape. But that actual fact of holding the pencil showed their brain scans to trigger happiness because the action is what led to the feeling. So feelings follow actions. And this is similar to the fake it till you make it concept, which has lost favor over the last decade or two. People don't like the idea of faking it till they make it. They want all authenticity all the time. But as I've already outlined, if we follow authenticity all the time, we're often simply acting on our feelings. And Honestly, acting out your feelings is exactly the hallmark of immaturity. Maturity, the cornerstone of maturity, is emotional regulation. It's the ability to master our emotions. When a two-year-old has a tantrum because they don't get the right color cup, we all understand it. It's even endearing and sometimes even cute because they're two. And we know that their prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed and we know that it's age-appropriate behavior. When two-year-olds are completely narcissistic and care only about what they want and they feel and only about making themselves feel good, again, we think of this as normal and cute because they're two. But when seven-year-olds or 17-year-olds or 47-year-olds do it, it's no longer cute. It's immaturity. And the ability to actually master our feelings and not be overridden by our emotions is also, I think, a pillar of a life of well-being, a life where we can feel good, where we can feel in control. And that's because no one I know, however sensitive or emotional they are naturally, feels good when they are a hostage to their emotions, when they are constantly whiplashed by roller coaster rides of feelings, when they can't master 
the way that their emotions respond to certain situations. I know for myself, it's a feeling of being like a child, of being out of control, of being weak in a sense. It does not actually feel good to constantly follow your heart. What feels a lot better, and we can kind of take a leaf out of the Stoicism book, is to master our feelings, to guide them through our actions. So much of the mental well-being and mental health uh, industry today is focused on therapy and medication, which I think it has a place. I think this can be important and there are you know, limitations to how much actions can perhaps help in certain situations. But I feel that this idea of taking positive actions that are going to shift you out of those feelings hasn't been properly explored and isn't given its proper place because it doesn't really fuel any kind of industry right? No one can sell that so easily. But that's tragic because it is so very powerful. Studies have found that the number one thing that people can spend their money on to maximize their joy is not a new gadget. It's not on some kind of self-care like getting a massage. It's not, on, it's not spending their money on anything that's for themselves, but it's actually giving something to someone else. When you gift money or buy something for someone else, you feel that you have got the most value for your money and you feel most happy and joyful and most rewarded by that money spent. In other words, the best money spent in terms of our happiness quota is money that we spend on other people. And the same is true for engaging in positive activities such as volunteering our time for other people or just spending time with and on friends. I think today so many people feel that caring for others is wasting time. Like, oh, I'm just spending all my time changing diapers or cooking for other people or cleaning the house or working for other people. And the fact is that if we shift our awareness around, we realize that giving of ourselves, spending our life, you've got to spend your life on something, right? You've got to spend yourself on something. But when you spend all of your energy, thoughts, actions, feelings on yourself, it leaves you in this kind of echo chamber of one and it doesn't feel very good. It feels isolated. It doesn't feel rewarding. We're social creatures. And so actually spending time with others and on others and spending our energy on others can improve our mood and reduce our symptoms of depression. And I think that's really important for parents to know that caring for your children, giving to your children, is not time wasted. It's not time that you didn't spend on yourself. It's time that you very much spent on yourself. Now, do you sometimes need time away from your children? Of course, just today I had to escape from, to my room for a 15-minute break when no one was allowed to talk to me because I needed time out. But that might be the exception that proves the rule that when we are actually in a state of giving, of building, of creating, of taking action, we are leading ourselves to feel good about life and about ourselves. Taking positive actions such as listening actively, smiling, expressing gratitude can improve relationships. Exercising regularly can reduce anxiety and improve mood. Setting small goals and taking actions towards them can increase motivation. All of these examples can show you how if you want better feelings like a good mood, feeling loved and loving, feeling like you are confident, feeling like you are happy, you've got to take the actions towards them. And I hope that you will take from this that this is what we need to teach our children. Even though there are certain limitations of applying this concept in certain situations, like, of course, there are some times when someone might try to take action to improve their mental state and to improve their feelings, but they still needed professional help. But on the whole, I think this is a much stronger 
strategy to offer our children in living a happy life. It's not to follow the feelings, but instead to remember that feelings follow actions. Do you love what you hear here on the High Fam podcast? Good. Then you are going to love the High Fam Bootcamp. It's called the Dream Family Bootcamp, and it's three days of beautiful videos, insightful ideas, and action packed guides. In this bootcamp, I'm going to be showing you the steps to take to build your dream family life because you started your family with a dream in your heart. And maybe you are now feeling like some of that dream is coming true, but a lot of the days feel like a grind and a hustle. If you ever spend the day just waiting for bedtime or escape into the larder to stuff chocolate in your face or doom scroll on your phone to escape your children's demands, I feel you. I see you. I know that this parenting gig is inherently challenging and I'm not going to pretend that it can be all rainbows and unicorns all day long. But I am going to tell you that there are strategies you can take to create your dream family life. But first, you've got to figure out what that dream is, and then we can start designing and working towards it. It is not something that just happens naturally, will happen on its own, or evolves without you doing anything about it. And yes, there are many, many families who stay stuck in a scream family life, frustrated, irritated, and disconnected. And that's not what you want and not what I want for you. So join me in April. Go to highfam.com slash bootcamp. That's highfam, H-I-F-A-M dot com slash bootcamp, B-O-O-T-C-A-M-P. I cannot wait to see you there.